HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Bianca Bosker, an award-winning journalist and author of the new book, Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me, really Bianca, to live for taste. We'll talk to Bianca about the book and her deep dive into the world of wine. We'll taste a white wine for our weekly wine sip. We'll see if maybe we'll do a blind tasting with Bianca. Maybe, maybe not. That could be too corny. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Bianca Bosker has done extensive writing about food, wine, architecture, and the world of tech. She published and released Cork Dork in March of this year. She's written for the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, HuffPost, The Guardian, just to name a few. She's also written books about bowling and Chinese architecture's copy culture. 
Welcome to the show, Bianca. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for coming in. We have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Let's get down to business. I, I finished the book a few weeks ago, and I have a whole stack of notes, and I thought it was terrific, and I really want to get into it. But Thank before you. we do that, I kind of want you to frame how you got to the book, your, your journey in life in wine that got you today, which is running all over the country and the world promoting this book. <laughs> so give us a little background, because you do have an interesting background. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon, uh, which is was not then what it is now. Um, it wasn't cool. It was not cool. So I left just as Portland was getting cool, and I hope those two things are unrelated. <laughs> okay. um, and I came out east to go to college, and uh, I have to say that when I first came to the East Coast, um, and I would say people would ask me where I was from, and I would say I'm from Portland, and they would say, oh, Canada, I hear it's beautiful this what? time of year. <laughs> and now all of my all of my friends are like, oh my God, I've always wanted to go to Portland. And I'm like, no, you haven't. Um, but um, yeah, I... Went to school on the East Coast. I was you East. went to Princeton. I went to Princeton. Um, normally, Very it's good. the first thing that everyone mentions, right. but no, I was trying not to. Just uh, I made be sure. the stereotype. But um, went to Princeton. I was uh, an East Asian studies major there, so I spent a lot of time in China studying Chinese. Um, I was also a writer even back then. I uh, wrote for the Trenton Times. Was covering Princeton news. Was in Hong Kong writing about. Um, you know, economics, books, news, culture, you name it. And uh, I eventually found my way after I graduated to the Huffington Post. So I joined there to what, help. What year? That was in 2009. Okay. So I came on board and was the co-founding editor of the Huffington Post's tech section. I spent five years there basically as the executive tech editor covering Facebook, Twitter, Google, Snapchat, the culture of tech. I mean, I wrote about um, televangelists using the internet to grow their churches. I wrote about uh, teen Vine celebrities, you name it. And um, I have to say that I was, at this point in my life, not a wine connoisseur. Um, I had done, uh, I would say I had started my alcoholic studies in earnest when I was in college. Um, I think one of the highlights, my, I guess my wine memory in college is primarily doing something called Tour de Franzia. <laughs> and uh, every year this uh, eating club that I was in, we would all dress up in spandex biking gear and we would hide boxed wine around this beautiful old mansion and essentially go on a race to find the boxed wine. You nutty Princeton kid. <laughs> right? And, uh, well, no, I think, you know, that was really my early palate education. Because um, you, you stole my first question. Yeah. You know, as we get into the book, it's what kind of wine consumer were you before? And you answered... An ignorant that, one. Not ignorant, but, you know, you started in college playing around. The, so keep going from there. Yeah. I, I mean, I was... I really... I enjoyed wine. I mean, who doesn't? It was like this nice thing you add to a important. meal. It was the thing that I bring to the dinner party at the very last minute because it's you know easier than flowers. And I really didn't know the first thing about wine. And that wasn't something that bothered me until one night uh, my husband dragged me out to dinner 
uh, with a friend Wait, of his. You have to fill in some gaps. Sure. So you leave Princeton. You go to the Huff Post. Mm-hmm. That's about oh nine. Mm-hmm. Um, Five years go by. Five years go by. Quick question on that. Was the tech world then as crazy as now? Same, but in a different way or different? It was not... I would say towards the end of my time at HuffPost, it was transitioning from a topic beat or sort of a topic into a culture. Right. I think when I started covering tech, it was still a little bit more on the sidelines of mainstream culture. I mean, right. of course, we used Facebook. So you saw all that We involved. used the iPhone. Yeah, but I will admit that the time when I left... HuffPost and really embarked on this wine journey that would become Cork Dork, there was never a better time to be covering tech. I mean, that was really... That was a I mean, time. in some ways, it was, you know, I just dropped it at its height. I mean, it, I think it's only continued to grow yeah. in its relevance, but of course. But you caught a great window. So, 09, five years. So, you're talking about leaving 2014? Basically, yeah. And 2014, you leave to... Write the book? To become a seller rat. To become a seller yeah. rat. Start over. Was the book the idea or the seller rat was the idea? <laughs> well, uh, and what, what, let's talk about that. I yeah. mean, what, why? You weren't a big wine person. What inspired you to become a seller rat? And don't tell me a couple of YouTube videos. You know, that honestly was the path that started me in. I mean, it's funny that you say that because I write about in the book, basically, you know, that a lot of people, I think the typical wine epiphany, I don't know what it was for you, but most people have their wine epiphany with, you know, a more expensive bottle of wine and a fancier part of the world and they're actually drinking wine. But no, for me, it happened watching YouTube videos of the best sommelier in the world competition, which, as I write in my book, if you haven't seen it, it is the Westminster Dog Show with Booze. And why, why sommeliers? Like, why wouldn't you look at videos of vineyards or winemaking? You know, what was the attraction? Sure. So it was... Um, I mean, I you know, it's uh it's funny. I have I have friends that ask me about the book. I'm like, did that really happen? And I'm like, it's nonfiction. I mean, it's it's fact. It just this is the way it happened. It just, I, I don't it, know. I it think drew it, you in. Yeah, if I could make up a better, you know, if my wine epi- if my wine epiphany could have been like a life or death moment on like a cliff somewhere, I mean that would have been maybe been a better story, but it's just the way it happened was really, you know, um I, look, I am a writer, which means I spend a lot of time alone. And I don't mind spending time alone. I'm very happy being like an indoor kid and just kind of siloing myself away. But what really happened was my husband was going out to dinner with a friend of his that loves wine, dragged me along. It was a cold, damp night, I think. And I was totally ready to give up on the whole debacle until the sommelier, who knew the friend that we were out with, mentioned that he was preparing for this best sommelier in the world competition. And my honest reaction to that was bullshit. Like, no way, not possible. How could this thing that looks so simple possibly be high stakes? You know, where is the sport in opening and pouring a bottle of wine? And I think that, you know, part of me is just interested in competitions. And the less they involve actual athletics and more they involve gluttony, the better. And so that set me on this rabbit hole. I mean, I think, look, I can procrastinate with the best of them. And I just started this, this idea of 
wine being competitive and people, you know, he was talking about all of the prep that he was doing. He was studying flashcards. He was thinking about taking uh, dancing lessons to learn how to move more gracefully across the floor. He was learning a second language. And it's something just stuck with me about that because I thought, you know, wine is supposed to be this thing of pleasure. And he was turning it into something that seemed utterly painful. And so I think it just stuck with me. And that led me down this rabbit hole of YouTube videos. And then eventually, yeah, deciding. So when you look back or around, I mean, you look at tech or other things you've written about. I mean, these guys are pretty crazy about it, right? I mean, that caught you. You know, you talked about these guys took dance lessons for movement on the floor and the test is a thousand flashcards. I mean, you don't see that in every profession, right? I mean, you were captivated by the fact that these guys were just... Yeah, well, I think part of what the book forced me to do was to do a little bit of self-psychoanalysis and, and to really understand what my motivations were. You know, why was I so taken by this? And the answer is, I do think that I personally have always been obsessed with obsession. And so there was something about... The, and I don't think anyone does fanaticism the way that wine lovers do. So that that's it right there. And that I was mean, a big part that really that that brought me in. That but was I think intriguing, right? That was very intriguing to me. And I think that more than that is that it was coupled with a sense of curiosity. Because to me, wine was alcoholic grape juice, pure and simple. And I just had never understood what was the big deal about this thing that costs a lot of money, that takes up a lot of time, and at the end of the day turns into very expensive pee. And I, I didn't make sense to me. And so there was something about this world. I think it, it also hit me at a time where, I, look, I had spent five years writing about tech. It is a very sterile world. It is a world of screens. It is a world of Soylent. It is a world of slideshows and virtual reality. And so I think there was a curiosity to know what was the big deal about wine. And then there was a more, for me, personal intrigue of what would it be like to train my senses the way that these sommeliers do, to pick up on the stories that exist in taste and smell, to step away from the screen, to kind of go into this world that is about this physical pleasure. Well, we're going to get into that because yeah. there's a lot of that in the book. So... You decide to embed yourself in this world. You decide to focus on sommeliers. Now, when you did this... Well, I would say I agree I focus on sommeliers because for me, a guiding I'm not this, saying exclusively, sure, but sure, that sure. was sort of the first look when you got through the door. Yeah, definitely. And I would say, you know, that it's um, even more broadly than that. Like, I do think that there's a lot, there's a lot of books about wine out there, and I think a lot of them... This is not like that. Trust me. <laughs> but I think that there's, you know, a lot of them focus on this, on, on the journey from grape to glass, right? It's about making wine. But it's that's a certain type of book. Sure, for that sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying, right. and, and I'm saying that this was is much more, yes, it's about sommeliers, but I think it's really about the journey from glass to gullet, right? It, it is. The and, taste, You know, I need you to help me unravel that. Sure. But, but you did, so you... <laughs> saying, just go along with you the embed, Right, you embed yourself... <laughs> In the wine world, yep. you embed yourself initially in the sommelier world, but mm -hmm. you know you're correct in saying that's not the only passage, mm -hmm. the only you know sort of goal. Um, so, what do you do? You, you 
and I asked you this off air, but I need you to answer it. Was the idea of a book always on the table, um, or? So I think that there little- was. This was something I was going to do no matter what. Okay. Like I said, I think there's times in life where things hit you, and they stick with you. And something, there was something that got inside my head. And if I had to write another story that involved looking at someone doing something on a screen, I was going to slit my wrists. <laughs> and instead, I just started drinking very heavily. Um, and so this was, uh, I mean, in the in the course of training to become a sommelier and, and my job as seller rat. Um, and there was, there was sort of no turning back. I think there was kind of this Pandora's box of, taste and of wine and of sommeliers that had opened up to me. But of course, I think that I have that particular disease that afflicts a lot of writers where it's hard for me to do anything without thinking that there's a potential story in it. I mean, one of the things I love to do is to tell stories. Right. Not necessarily hand in hand, but it could go somewhere and be a good subject matter. So you're alluding to the fact that you became a seller at, worked in a restaurant, tried to taste as much wine, befriended sommeliers. That was the beginning. Forced myself on sommeliers. You were off to the races. Right. (laughs) So talk a little about that. What was important? To know what they were thinking, to drink a lot of wine. You know, talk about the early stages that got you started in the book. Yeah, well, I quit my job at the Huffington Post deciding that I wanted to become one of these cork dorks. And for those that aren't familiar with the term, it's not just the book title, it's also this restaurant nickname for the most passionate and obsessive wine lovers. And so I quit my job and I had these grand aspirations that I would um, start at like a two Michelin star restaurant and kind of work my way up to a three Michelin star restaurant from there. (laughs) Which was utterly delusional. <laughs> I mean, I quickly realized that uh, cork dorks have a name for people like me, which is civilian, which would tell you everything you need to know about how uh, you are not part of the inner sanctum, um, and you have to earn a place there. And so I, through a sort of painful process of that floundering, was- realized that I had to really start over. I mean, I had to just start at the bottom. I had to learn the craft. And I desperately needed, I felt, some mentors who would take me under their wing and show me the way of wine. And part of getting that was actually to, I think, part of it was showing me, you know, I I wasn't just here to mess around. I was here to lift boxes. I was here to go into the cellar. I was here to almost kill myself falling off of ladders with, you know, crates of champagne right alongside them. And so... So were you a distraction to most people or initially, or did people embrace and say, listen, we'll help you try this a little of both? So I would say that a little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to ask them if I was a pain in the ass. Um, I assume that's what you mean by distraction. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, I'm schlepping wine up and oh, down steps. Oh, I mean, I'm I working was... the floor 12 hours. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to taste yeah. and do my test. Where I mean, do I need you in my To my life? boss's credit, I was... I would, God, I was horrible at my job at first. Um, okay. And but look, I think that there was. I was so say, that was at a restaurant as a seller, at, yeah, which yeah. had a lot more moving parts than you figured were there, right? Yeah, inventory schlepping, a lot knowledge, of schlepping, yeah, you know, right, <laughs> a lot of schlepping. And uh, but I think it's, you know part of it was um, 
you know, I quickly identified that I desperately wanted to work the floor as a sommelier. And I... You knew that early? I knew that early, for sure. And I was trying to identify what was the kind of fastest way to actually make that a reality. Because the truth is, it's hard. These are not easy jobs to get. There's no guarantee that you get to set out and just become a sommelier. So I decided that... I wanted to take the Court of Master Sommelier's Certified Sommelier Exam, which is, you know, sort of the gold standard for working So as you jumped into it, that was a goal you set early. I set early, yeah, because I wanted to, first of all, I wanted a, while there aren't classes that you can take, I wanted some sort of system or discipline that I could follow. I wanted a way to test in an objective way if I was improving. And I also wanted something that I could have in hand in order to try and show my chops so I could actually work the floor. And as part of that, I figured out, well, there's this kind of secret society hiding in plain sight, you know, of these aspiring master sommeliers who gather to taste, you know, one to seven days a week, at least once a day, right? I mean, they're tasting all the time in preparation for this insanely difficult exam. And I wanted them to be my mentors. I didn't want to just, because I, I joined other tasting groups with, you know, beginners like me, et cetera. And I, and I just... I didn't, I was not messing around. (laughs) And so I wanted to go straight to the top. And so, yeah, I both found in that process that the community is deeply welcoming, is incredibly generous with their knowledge and that you damn well better be able to earn your place into it in that community. Because I will say like I had, you know, awkward, not awkward, but I had a very blunt experiences um, where people made clear to me just how not a part of it I was yet, right? I remember early on, like, going to one of these blind tasting groups with these um, master sommelier candidates, and I sat down with my tasting partner, and everyone else sat down with their tasting partner, and I did what everyone else around me was doing, and as he went through the flight, I then afterwards gave him feedback on how he did. And you gave feedback to your guy. Yeah, because everyone else was driving. I mean, I'd be helpful. You know, you missed uh, you didn't call the color. You didn't you know, you you didn't, you know, give an acid call or maybe I quibbled with the alcohol. Yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe three days later, I get an email in my inbox from the sommelier and he says, I just have to tell you, I want to apologize for being such a dick to you when we tasted. But when you started giving me feedback, I thought, who the fuck does this girl oh, think okay. she is? She's like, and he's like, it's like wings for paratroopers. Like you, if you don't have it, you're not in. And not wrong. No. And I think that it was a humbling and critical slap in the face that there is at the same time that there is a, a welcoming and a very generosity of knowledge there is a hierarchy and you have to honor it right. <laughs> otherwise you're not long just tell me this a curiosity you were in a lot of these tasting groups they go on all the time with different people they're different levels do sommeliers taste all the time or the bar is raised when they're taking a test? Do they taste even more? 
I think it depends on the person. It, honestly. Right. Yeah. So it's not a given that. But I think there's, I mean. Because they always want to taste new things, different things compare. Yeah. And there's different types of tasting, right? I mean, there's tasting and distributor tasting right. to sort of get up right. on the cool new wines. And there's you tasting were with a lot of practice. groups, you know, that brought There was a own. lot of drinking. All right. So you're, this is my opinion. Your portrayal of sommeliers was not necessarily flattering. Hmm. Accurate. Detailed, you know. I think you were being honest, and I think in in breaking down sommeliers, you know, there's something going on there that's very appealing, but there's something a little weird, and you know, I think you uncovered that a little. But that's um, funny that you say that because I think, in my mind, it was flattering. I mean, to me, I think that these are complicated. I don't. I'm not saying nuanced that. positions and people, and I think that I there's, think these guys are crazy. <laughs> And I think you reveal that, and that may be my interpretation of, you know, that's flattering. I mean, who does this? Who does what these guys do? Right. You know, you witnessed it, and you did it. Right, and I think to be clear, I mean, for those who haven't read the book. And it's not a negative that, you know, I don't want to position this that you were not flattered. I, I think it's them, not you. I think you were just, you know, talking about these guys. I mean, these are some crazy guys, and, you, you know, in the book, you, they don't brush their teeth because they don't want to... You oh, know. certain times of the day. Yeah, yeah hot right. water, you know. Divorce that. their spouse to spend more time yeah, studying. Yeah, I mean, okay, the- <laughs> so I made my point in a way and all that. Um, did your feelings about sommeliers change during the process? I mean, did you feel closer to them as a brotherhood? Did you understand them more? I mean, obviously, did you, were you more accepting? Did they seem crazier? I mean, how did your feelings evolve? Well... On, they evolved on many different levels. I would say in one sphere, you know, I started out obsessed with their obsession. And I think I wound up obsessed with the things that they obsess over. Um, I mean, I remember marveling at, uh, with a lot of degree of skepticism, at, you know, Morgan, who was a dear friend of mine and also was just an incredible mentor to me over his ability to talk about wines that could make you feel small the way a painting could or a poem or a piece of music and thinking that that was just impossible. And yet through the course of really understanding how to savor wine, how to listen to my palate, how to listen to my nose, how to pick up on the stories that exist in a glass of wine, I felt that, and I caught myself talking to friends in sort of the same way about bottles of wine I was about to give to them. And I think at the same time, I what really hooked me in the beginning about sommeliers was the sensory element, right? It was this idea of, I think most of us um, really dismiss taste and smell. You know, I think... So talk about that, because you lay a pretty serious dose of science. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and history, equal tra- I think, yeah. yeah. But chapters on smell, chapters on taste. On the brain, You know, yeah. even in the title, I mean, you, you really got involved with scientists, but there's sort of a root point to all of that about senses, and I think the Psalms were talking about that, and you realized how important. Talk about how important smell and taste was and smell seemed underrated 
you Absolutely. know, you wrote and it's, it's, it has been, I think it's. So talk about how that, you know, affected you and what you did. I mean, you did a lot about that. Yeah. Well, I think more than many of us realize we ignore our senses of taste and smell, which is a, just a shame, right? I mean, we've been given five senses to make sense of the world, and we've basically thrown out two of them. And as I started looking into this, what I found so remarkable is that actually Plato and Aristotle were really the first to adopt this sort of anti-sense sensibility. They decided early on these are the base senses. They don't matter. They are the animalistic side of us. And by the way, humans are terrible at them anyway, so just forget about it. <laughs> it goes back to that. It right? goes back to that. And I think that when you really trace philosophy, science, that perspective has infected these disciplines more than many of us realize, even our day-to-day lives. And as part of my training, you know, I was spending a lot of time with these sommeliers, understanding these tried and true methods of palate training. But I was also doing really horrible things to my liver. I was drinking, you know, probably to my teeth as well. And I wanted to understand, what was this actually having a difference, right? Could I even train my senses to begin with? And so I complemented that with time with sensory scientists, with neuroscientists, And what I learned in the course of that is that basically uh, around the 19th century, there was this otherwise brilliant neuroscientist, Paul Broca, who ostensibly discovered scientific proof showing that humans had unlearned how to smell. And this view has really persisted. And in fact, what's so surprising is it's a myth. We have this idea that as we learn to walk upright, we lost our sense of smell. It was no longer relevant. Civilized man has no need for odors. And no, I mean, we are actually better smellers than we think we are. We beat rats, dogs, when it comes to certain odors. Um, We can actually hone our senses with a little training just by kind of smelling, uh, you know, different smells several times a day or, you know, every day. Um, And these things matter. I mean, we use smell to communicate in a social context. You've probably heard of pheromones, right? But it goes way beyond that. And so I think that was what caught me, brought me in is here were, I could just on a basic level, when I started this, I could stick my nose into a glass of wine. And if I was feeling really lucky, I could tell you that I was smelling wine. And these sommeliers could put their nose into a glass of wine and tell you stories. I mean, these tastes and smells spoke to them. Um, that's you a mixed became, metaphor. You became smell obsessive. I did. And, and I, you and were I, smelling everything. And I still Garbage do. <laughs> All the time. I mean, it has really... For me, it's, you know, this, this idea of, uh, of living, you know, sensefully, paying attention to these forgotten senses. For me, it started with a glass of wine. But, yeah, I think about it when I'm on the subway. I mean, when I go for a walk in Central Park, I am stopping every couple of feet to smell you the branches, every, the dirt, you name it. You said in the book, Through Science, that everything you smell, you ingest. This is true. So, so if you walk into like a smelly men's room, you're ingesting that, which means I'm in I did earlier. To a men's room. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a connection to that because you embedded yourself in the science to understand it. And it, it really was a lesson in history and science. But the reason you did it is to figure out, and tell me if I'm correct in, in framing or stating this, if Psalms, who were the trained professionals, had any, and help me explain this, additional, better, professional smelling skill than the rest of us. 
How, how do that I? How do you restate that? Yeah, I will say that that was. Are a, these guys smelling better than us? Are they smelling more? They are. And what did science say? And, and, yeah. and why? Yeah, so they help are. me answer that. That's a great question. This is well, I, I should say it's a great question. I also ask myself this great question <laughs> um, because um, there's. I was also no stranger to all the scientific research, as I'm sure you've seen, that basically takes someone like me or like you, puts yellow tail into some bottle of like first growth Bordeaux and then pours it for us. And we say, oh, my God, it's like it's aging beautifully. It's crazy, right? It's just so well developed. Right. Um, There's a lot of these gotcha studies out there, you know, experts, quote unquote, falling for white wine dyed red, etc. So I did have this, I, I did want to also know, was this all bullshit, right? And I do think that a lot of wine is bullshit, but, you know, I'm, I should say, I rephrase. There's, well, no, I, I guess that's true. There's a lot, a lot of wine's wine. bullshit. Just outline the price, the hype, well, uh, I think the that, quality. I mean, what well, are the bullshit say, I things? That, I think that there's, um, let me finish that thought, though, which is that as, as although there can be a lot of bullshit, I think that w- what's frustrating is that when you clear that away, you are left with these really critical, precious truths about the senses, about memory, about experience that can inform our lives way beyond wine. And I think that the bullshit obscures those things. So going back to expertise, which... I came to the conclusion is not bullshit, right? I mean, if you look at the um, studies that have been done, for example, on how people uh, change their ability to recognize uh, small, minute concentrations of odors or to identify odors or pick out odors, it does change. And more than that, we can visualize those changes in the brain. So there's been... Uh, fMRI studies that have been done where they took sommeliers and they took novice drinkers and they put them into an fMRI and they fed them wine and they asked them questions and watched how their brains reacted to flavor. Didn't you do that? And I was going to say, yeah, as part of my ultimate test, I didn't just take the certified sommelier exam. I wanted to take it one step further and really know at the end of this all, had I changed my brain? And so after a year, whatever it was, a year and of a half. committing yeah. yourself to this, you yeah. wanted to see clinically I have, from a machine, yeah. <laughs> were you able to... Well, here's the thing. I, I felt like I changed, right? On a more emotional, Well, you were nailing experiential stuff. Level. People would pull stuff out of the bottle and you got it. <laughs> well, and I felt like I, even if it wasn't in a blind tasting context... Um, it was speaking to me. I think you know you before, right. like wine only ever made me drunk, and instead it was appealing to me on a level that was intellectual, it was emotional. So yeah, the science test, this fMRI that I did, that was a replication of these studies, was an attempt to see had my brain changed. And what these studies tell us, just to finish the thought, is not only that any of us can train our senses, but also why we should bother to do so. And what you see is that with a little bit of effort, we, instead of just neglecting this aromatic and gustatory information, instead we internalize it, right? It turns into, it activates the higher order parts of our brain involved with memory, with reasoning. Um, And it, I think, slots into our just knowledge of the world. It makes us more aware. You said... um to the overall point, you said Psalms don't possess better physical equipment. 
they, it's the manner of thinking that's unique. They perceive and interpret flavors they encounter in a more developed way. And that filter changes everything. So they, they train themselves, and in time, they do become better tasters. And you, through science and testing, figured all that out, right? <laughs> well, I think that I, I always like to get as much... I think that oftentimes... I, I, I think that, for example, that's probably something that some people may have felt like they'd confirmed without the need for scientific testing. And if they feel like, yeah. you know, they don't need yeah, it, Yeah, I mean, you took fine. it, you know, yeah. many steps. But I think people will realize if they commit themselves to some level you know, that they'll get better at that. I do think that these worlds could talk to each other more often than they do. I think that there's a lack of... I think that the wine world could embrace a more interdisciplinary mindset. Ah, okay. Yes. All right, we're talking to Bianca Bosker. Bianca just wrote a book called Cork Dork, which we're talking about right now. Um, Just to go backwards a little... (laughs) Did your marriage, health, <laughs> relationships, were they affected in any major way? You talk a little <laughs> about your health. You were drinking more than ever. You were married during the period when you left, you know, a legit job to go there. I mean, you survived all of that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's funny. I've now had two readers come up to me at a book signing and say, now, I haven't finished the book yet. But I just need to know, are you and your husband still ah, together? That's funny. <laughs> um, and, you, uh, you give them a lot of shout-outs at the beginning and at the end. Yeah. Just thank God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're still together. Well, it's dedicated to him. But uh, I don't know. I guess people might read that as some last-ditch effort to get him back. I don't know. I think, spoiler, we're still together. But, yeah, it definitely did take... I mean, this was... Um, I mean, my I turned my life upside down for yeah. it. it. It completely changed. You really and did. And it, um, of course, there were long periods of time where I was spending more time with Morgan than I was with my husband, right? I mean... But people do that at work, too. For sure. Sleep eight hours, work eight hours, you know, yeah. maybe, or, you I know, mean, so you, you know, were out even nocturnal longer. nocturnal for parts of... You worked on the floor at restaurants. We'll talk right. about that a little. But one of the things you mentioned earlier, which was part of the texture of the book was you wanted to be, you wanted to see if you can certify yourself as a sommelier. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little about that because it's truly, I think you describe it accurately, just a very difficult test, you know, compared to other things. And and you alluded earlier to flashcards and tastings and all of that. You know, the, the part of the book where you focus on SOM certification comes towards the end. But at some point, you did everything you did. You worked the floor, you tasted wines, you, and then you got ready to to go for the, the certification. Talk a little yeah. about that. Not an easy thing. Yeah. So the exam, for those that aren't familiar with it, um, is administered by the Court of Master Sommeliers. And the cert- certified sommelier exam includes three parts. There's uh, theory, which is basically a written test of wine knowledge. There's a blind tasting, which is what it sounds like. Um, you have to identify um, a couple wines blind. And then there's a service section, which is where uh, you have to uh, serve wine to... How you would conduct yourself yeah, on the like floor Yeah, like you'd conduct yourself on the floor. Fine restaurant. Right. I mean, it's some combination between like a 
blind date and trivial pursuit and like ballroom dancing. Weird. Yeah, it's so weird. And the rules, I mean, you know, there are like 12 to 15 steps for pouring a glass of red wine. There are guidelines for how the demeanor, you know, you should be friendly, but not too friendly, how you should smile, how you should smile Never too show much. the back of your hand. Of I mean, these tiny little things. Yeah. Walk clockwise. Right. I, I mean, it just goes on and on. There's rules upon rules upon rules. I mean, I came to think of Psalms as being sort of the ballerinas of the restaurant floor in the sense that it looks deceptively easy, right? It is something that is insanely difficult, and yet your job is to make it look effortlessly elegant. So you're, I mean, I think what a lot of people don't realize or appreciate is, look, chefs get are like the sexy rogues of the restaurant world, right? They get flames, they get knives, and Psalms deal in a much tattoos. more tattoos, drugs, right? right? I mean, Psalms can't be doing that kind of shit to your nose, right? Right, right. And, uh, and they, I think Psalms deal in a much more nuanced form of tension, right? I mean, and it is hard stuff, and it is incredibly demanding, grueling hours that you are working takes such a high level of skill. I mean, these are really the most masochistic hedonists I've ever come across in my life. But I think that there's, I think a lot of us have a tendency to, a lot of people that don't understand that world just overlook it, right? Because there aren't the sharp objects and flames. Now, going back to the exam. So there's, um, the test recommends that you spend a minimum of three years in the wine industry before you attempt the certified. You have to take an exam, actually, before you can even... You have to pass the intro exam before you can even take the certified. Um, and while they recommend three years, I was giving myself a year oh, to take it. Oh, not you, right? <laughs> Let's make it really... No, and so you it was... condensed it pretty heavily, <laughs> It was... Uh, you know, I mean, and that was part of the insanity that I put myself through. Um, and yeah. now the three things you mentioned, yeah. just to get off the track was, is one much harder than the others or they're all equally silly hard in their own way. I think they're all equally silly hard in their own way, but it also depends on the person. Was one harder for you? I would say the service was hardest for me. That was hard for you? Yeah, because look, with a blind tasting... You had tasting, a good first experience yeah, right. at the Young Psalm competition. Yeah. You have oh, to boy. read the book to find that yeah, out. Yeah, it did not... I would say my, my attempt at practicing for time on the for the service exam ended in disaster, but I will let you read the book to find out how that so was. So you... They recommend three years of working the floor, and because you did this whole project, you did it within a year and a half. Now, we're going to take a break because we have to break. We're going to come back and finish the certification part. I have a bunch of other questions. I need you to answer our wine list. I will subject you to a bunch of questions. And if we have time, we're going to taste a wine on air and see if you still have your chops. Oh, yeah. So you're listening to Bianca Bosker, whose new book, Cork Dork, is out everywhere. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Bianca. Bianca. Don't go away. Don't go away. Hi, I'm Mike Edison for Heritage Foods USA, and I want to tell you a story. Sam Edwards of S. Wallace Edwards & Sons has been one of Heritage Foods' greatest partners and a Heritage Radio Network sponsor for many years. 
Sam produces some of the greatest ham in America, cured in an old world style for up to 400 days until they are perfect and ready to serve. Sadly, though, Sam's entire facility in Surrey, Virginia, was destroyed by a fire early this year, including his smokehouse and literally thousands of hams. It was an incredible blow to everyone that is part of the Heritage Foods USA chain. We now had thousands of hams that Sam normally would have smoked and cured. Our entire network of family farmers who depend on Sam's business every week were potentially devastated by this loss. Incredibly, our extended community of cure masters came together and helped us out by boosting their heritage charcuterie production, starting new curing lines, and helping us turn a disaster into a new heritage foods initiative to better the quality and taste of American charcuterie through the use of pasture-raised heritage breeds. Heritage Foods is now able to premiere a brand new selection of ham, bacon, and salami from true American artisans with generations of experience behind them, dedicated to the art of curing by hand, even as we continue to offer Sam Edwards fantastic hams while they are still available and help him rebuild his business. Heritage Foods USA has been a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network since day one. We hope you'll visit our website, heritagefoodsusa.com, to learn more and check out our entire line of steaks, chops, provision, gifts, including this amazing cured ham I am eating right now. Wow, this stuff is good. It could change your life. Hi, I'm Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. My show is about people, life, and food. Tune in on Wednesdays at 1 o'clock to hear me talk with people from all walks of life. I interview artists, writers, healers, chefs, and much more. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Your donations help keep us operating. All right, we're back. We're back with Bianca Bosker author and journalist. Her book is Cork Dork. And we're going to finish up a few things on the book, and then we'll subject Bianca to our wine list, and hopefully we could taste a little wine. So let's finish the certification process. So you cram into what people say you should go out there and do for about three years in a year and a half. It's service, it's studying, and tasting. tasting, the blind tasting and all of that. So you have to leave the New York area to take the test, which was kind of an interesting experience because you surrounded yourself with really the best and the brightest, and now you go down to Virginia or something, yeah. and there's a whole world different world of people and wine yeah. same wine different people yeah <laughs> and you befriend a woman who gives you a real good perspective on life yeah, absolutely yeah. so as i was preparing for the certified sommelier exam as i just men mentioned my service skills left something to be desired so in the course of trying to hone these skills um, i completed several apprenticeships in michelin-starred restaurants here in new york which was a radically eye-opening experience. I mean, as someone who hadn't ever really gone behind the scenes to understand how psalms on the floors of these high-end restaurants accomplish the theater that they do was utterly fascinating. I mean, just as a, maybe, if, you know, Look, I found it, coming from the tech world, I was familiar with Facebook and Amazon, all these companies keeping tabs on what we do and what we spend. 
But I didn't know that my restaurants were. And I mean, these restaurants were judging their guests every bit as much as the guests are judging them. You know, keeping tabs on the wine PXs, the Personne Extraordinaire, the PPXs. So PX, Person Extraordinaire. Yeah, PPX is is the... Big spender. Means you spend a whole lot of money. A return guy who buys (laughs) for different reasons to impress his girlfriend, his wife, business people. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting here looking at. They had notes on every big customer. Yeah. I mean, if you throw a temper tantrum, you could be an HWC, which is handle with care. Uh, you could also be uh, an SOE, which is sense of entitlement. Uh, New York has none of those, of course. And you, t- you talk about a guy who's ready to order a big bottle of wine and his wife or girlfriend talks. Oh, yeah, him yeah. You know, there's all it's these. referred to as the cork block, right? <laughs> the cork yeah. block, right. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, yeah, I'd spent time in these, you know, very high-end restaurants. I mean, really just the the pinnacle of sort of what we think of as driving these you know, the creme de la creme of the wine experience. And so when it came time to, to take the test, um, I would have been certainly easier to take it in New York, but these dates fill up like that because there's everyone's hungry for these certified, you know, for these sommelier certifications. So I ended up going down to Virginia Beach. Now, Virginia Beach is not you know, a kind of global wine city on par with like New York or San Francisco or LA or London. Nowhere right? near. It's not. I mean, it's, um, I think, I mean, the, the best restaurant that's there, at least as it was pointed out to me, you know, was in a Hilton hotel on a strip across from an enormous parking lot. I mean, everything <laughs> is just kind of quantity over quality, but I ended up meeting um, a sommelier who was also taking the certified sommelier exam. And uh, because it's always a good idea to meet a stranger, uh, you know, over the Internet and then get in their car, she picked me up from the airport. And we spent the evening together and basically the entire weekend together prepping, stressing, just being frantic over this exam. And this person I spent time with was a woman named Annie. And Annie was brought a very different perspective to the art of being a sommelier. So the people I'd spent time with in New York, I mean, a lot of them described themselves as white-collar refugees, right? They brought Stanford engineering degrees, PhDs in philosophy. They came to wine as a calling. Annie had dreams of enlisting in the Army when she was growing up. She had uh, her first child right after she graduated high school. She married to a plumber. And For her, wine, the sommelier certification, was really her family's ticket into the middle class, into providing a better livelihood for her family. And she, you know, was someone who was made to memorize these tete de cuvee champagnes that she'd never laid eyes on, much less tasted. And I found her to really be one of the most insightful, the people with one of the most insightful kind of human perspectives on wine. I mean, I think to me, I, I was so lucky that I met her and that she brought that perspective because it was... Um, a balance to it the was. people you were yeah, hanging out Yeah, it was a very different way of looking at the role of wine. The was a ticket to a better restaurant and a higher pay scale, right? Yeah, and she also had to deal with very different challenges as a Psalm. I mean, in the sense <laughs> that she was working at a place where... Um, you know, people, when she like took over this wine program, there were four bottles and they were basically all a step above Yellowtail. And the idea of paying $40 for a bottle was just unheard of. And right. she was really trying to bring up the level of her guests because Crazy. she had 
found this passion. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think it was, it was just a very different way of, of thinking about how you bring people into wine. So both of you take the test, mm-hmm. the three parts, mm-hmm. and you went in, you're cocky in a good way. Not in that test. I mean, I was just you both take it, and he was a little that. nervous too. <laughs> we were both, yeah. You both take it. You had time in between some of the sections, and then you got called in. And what happened? You want me to tell you? I will say. I, I will say. Don't. You're right. I don't. That's a good cliffhanger. You'll see what happens to these two, um, but you'll get the sense of how important the test is and the relationship and everything. All right, we got to wrap up and get to a few other things. But I kind of want to end by um, two interesting things I picked up in the book. The One of the people that you worked with for and befriended is a guy named Paul Greco, who was on mm. about a month ago. And there's such El a... El Greco, I believe. El Greco. Mm. There's such a, a, a thing to the wine world. And Paul has this perspective, and I'll tell you what it is and you just you know comment on it he basically thinks wine is yummy and if you drink it and one sip leads to a second that's good and if one bottle leads to another you know all the science and tasting groups bianca talks about it's paul's not necessarily concerned um so that was one point. And the other thing is you really get into a lot of science and detail and people and all that. But in the end, you sort of deduce that the correct way about wine was not necessarily the right way. So I think you set out thinking one thing, doing a lot of things, and realizing another. Tell me, just break that down a little for me. So I think that um, when I started out, as I mentioned, I... <laughs> you know, had these aspirations of working in the, you know, billionaires row, 12 Michelin star restaurants, right? That I was going to go um, to the finest of fine dining rooms and do wine there. And at the end of... That's what you thought. That's you what I thought going into where it. where it would lead to. Yeah. And I think that having gone, spent some time in these very high caliber dining rooms, having also spent time in you know, these mass market wine factories, having spent time with people like Annie in Virginia beach. I ultimately decided that, you know, I, first of all, that I didn't want to preach to the converted, that I wanted to go someplace where I could try and bring people to wine who were maybe skeptics the way I had been when I started, you know, people that rolled their eyes when you talked about the smell of dirt and wine being a good thing. Right. And I think it also came down to, you know, when I, when I say about, you know, the correct way is not necessarily the right way, I think what I was talking about there is this idea of service. I mean, I think that there is an etiquette. There is a beautiful way, and it was something I really learned deeply in my time with Morgan, of, of the way that your actions, your choice of words, your body language can be a way of showing respect for the guest. Now, which, on the other which, hand... Which is a beautiful thing. So, yeah, I mean... And the he way, is so committed to that. Absolutely. I mean, it's his being. Absolutely. And yet, and I then, think that there are times where, you know, wine is for a lot of people already the snooty aristocrat of alcohols. And what they need, I think you have to have that flexibility. For some people, what the way you engage with them is going to be with the serviette, 
following the proper procedures to a T. But what I loved about Paul and what I loved about Terroir and ultimately why I threw myself into being there was the way that we had the flexibility to kind of improv at every table depending on what the guests needed from that experience. That was fun. That was important. Yeah. And that way, and, you know, to kind of ad-lib the dialogue. Terroir is a wine bar. Paul was on the show. It's crazy. It's a a different environment than the Michelin star restaurant. I mean, completely. But like you said, not right or wrong. Just, you know, different. Well, that's a good way to uh, end. There's a lot more detail to what Bianca and I talked about. So I suggest that you pick the book up and read it. It's a fun read and it's a great read um, I want you, you to quickly and we'll talk about where you can get it and follow Bianca and all that when we're done I want you to quickly buzz through my wine list which right. is a bunch of questions because you really you know got yourself into the wine world so don't obsess on these questions let's move through them quickly because we're running out of time what are you drinking now? And when I say that, you know, is it summer wines? Are you tasting something? Are you in a room? What's, what's the thing you're drinking more now? Now, now. <laughs> Not right now. But. Um, well, I will say that I just, uh, so I live um, near a place called Eastside Cellars. And I just, every time I go there, I like end up loaded with bottles of wine. And I just left there. Um, with a bottle of Movia. Uh, they're Sauvignon Blanc. From, M-O-V-I-A? Yeah, it's this... Um, from Slovenia. My mom's side of the family is from Slovenia, so there's a particular family. Slovenia residence. is a hot winemaking Yeah, region. and it's, you know, there's a personal kind of story there, but it was so good, and I'm dying to rush up there before they sell out of it. So if, you're li- if someone there is listening, please pull the bottle for me. So you're drinking Slovenian wine Movia. Good one. Maybe a first on the show. What about your favorite wine and food pairing? Through Ooh. all of this, did something reoccurred yeah. did you connect yeah, yeah, with yeah. something yeah 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 so I've been doing I don't know if you've I mean so I've been doing this series on Instagram called Pear Devil and the idea we'll promo that at the end is, too but I don't us. know what I'm saying but I'm saying so as a part of it I've, I've been doing like uh, experimenting with all different wine combinations so Pear Devil it's hashtag Pear Devil yeah. P-A-I-R-D-E-V-I-L yeah. so one word and explain what it is basically I think you know, it's wine for the food that we actually eat most of the time. And it's right. the idea of just getting people to drink wine. It's not foie gras or turn. It's yeah. So one of my actually one of my favorite pairings was Domino's pizza and Cremant du Jura. Um, and it was Cremant du Jura yeah. is sparkling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, unbelievable. It was delicious. Okay, <laughs> well, you know, a lot of our guests say champagne and pizza, champagne and fried chicken. So you're talking about a Jura sparkling yeah, yeah, pizza, yeah. which is yeah. great. So that's a good one. All right, tell me, as a New Yorker, and from the book, your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. A place where the attention to wine, the service, the selection, the people. Oh, my God. Just one? Give me a few. (laughs) I mean... Give me a few faves. And, you know, we're not... Picking faves, yeah. we're just suggesting a few. So, so look, this is not number one, two, three. Just yeah, I would say. I mean, I always, I terroir occupies such a special, deep place. And in I my think heart. that's a great answer. Period. Anyway, you know, I'm a cheerleader, so yeah. terroir wine bar um, is a great food. He's got great curated food and just awesome wines. The list is changing right. basically hourly. Give um, me one or two more. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to say. Um, well, Victoria James, who's this wine wonderkind, I write about her in my book, um, is also 
kind of the wine grand dame both at um, Piora and now at Coach. Coach. And I'm very excited. Uh, Korean, Korean barbecue. barbecue. Yeah. And but so, not, it's more fancy meat. Right. And anyway, her list, I think she's pouring by the glass from Magnums. Super excited to go and check that out. So I, have, okay. I haven't been there, but I like Victoria's Are we talking awesome. Coat and Piora or Coat right now? Both of them. But, but, I, but Coat to me is like new. I, I haven't been there, so I'm excited to go. All right. Give me one more. Um... Uh, I always enjoy going to the Compagnie des Vins Sur Naturel. Caleb was on one. the show. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, I mean... You, you, you could stop right okay. there. Tell me from your probably personal experience, because I've had guys like Dustin Wilson in from... Mm-hmm. He now owns a wine store. Tell me... Suggest to me your best wine for around 15 bucks, a little higher. Give me a red and a white. I have a 28-year-old son. I always use this example. He's going to dinner with friends, doesn't have a ton of money, doesn't want to look like a dummy. What's he getting for a white? What's he getting for a red, in your opinion? Oh, um... And I'll give you a little hint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Muscadet is always a good answer yeah. for the white. But think beyond that if you can. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm trying to think what I've picked up recently that I've enjoyed. Um, I had... I mean, first of all, like, always a Riesling. I mean, I think that you can find awesome, awesome Rieslings. Um, That's a Paul Greco answer. It is, but I think also thinking about this summer, you know, and and thinking about if you can get, um, and thinking about something that's, you know, a better bang for the buck. I also, I'm trying to think, God, how much was it? Uh, I mean, right now. I think you can get Rieslings for, I'm pouring wine, so that's why. Yeah, (laughs) it's all the shuffling. Um, Oh, this is beautiful. Um, You guys can't see this wine, but it is. I'm going to do a blind. Gorgeous. Um, All right, so did you give me... So you said Riesling. I'll yep. take Riesling. And then, uh, I mean, I don't know the exact price point, but the Pierre... I mean, Gamay, you know, something from uh, Beaujolais is great. Like, I think that... I mean, the Pierre Corton, but that might be a little bit more well, than 15. Um, 18, 22 bucks. So yeah. it's Pierre Corton, C-O-R-T-O-N? Or? Yeah, let me make sure that's right. All right, well, I'm going to post Oh, Corton, I'm sorry. C-O-T-O-N? You're killing my red-eyed brain, my friend. All right, so your answer yeah, is a Riesling for the white and for the red, a Gamay. Oh, wow. All right, so those are all good choices. All right, so that's Bianca's answers to our weekly wine list. I'll post them on our Facebook page. All right, so we're going to end the show quickly. But Do you be- want a specific reason? I mean, like Chateau Bella was one that we always had. I think it's a yeah. bargain. It's delicious. Yeah. It's great Riesling. Um, and yeah, that's Chateau, it. that's the reasoning? Chateau? Bella. Spell it. B-E-L-A. B-E-L-A. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll look it up, too. All right. So we do a feature like we do the wine list. We do the weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air. Usually I'll tell you exactly what it is, but I will in a second. And this is more fun than, you know, I, I don't want this to be awkward or whatever. But I have a white wine here, and I want us to taste it, and I want to see if you could figure out who, what, where, and then I'll tell you. All so right. it's a little cloudy. Yeah, it's very a deep, amber, beautiful color. Deep colors. Is it apple juice? No. <laughs> so the nose is... We'll, we'll talk about the nose in a second. Let's take a sip, and then I want you to analyze. You'll tell me about the nose, the mouthfeel, and the palate. 
All right, so what do you think? What do you think about age, area, grape? Yeah. No wrong answers. Mm. Older or younger? I mean, this color would suggest that it's got a little bit of age on it because it's okay. a beautiful dark color. But I think. Uh, Give me a color. range. 1990s, 2000s, teens? Feels like it has a lot of alcohol in it, but um, I mean, it's, it's, I will it, say it that it does. It's pretty sharp on the alcohol. Yeah, um, I will say that I have like plain nose from this red eye, but I would say you know it has like a lovely. It has definitely like a. Um, What's the grape? I just want to jump right into the grape. No, no, go. I didn't oh, mean right, to interrupt yeah. you. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I mean, look, I think it could be potentially like a Viognier. Okay. Yeah. From. Is it a French Viognier or it could be made? I. The alcohol, just, on, I mean, I'm not going through the whole process. I, I would probably lean towards a California Viognier um, okay. just because it has like a bit higher alcohol, but yeah. Um, Give me a vintage year ish. Uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm not asking for the year. What range do you no, think? No, no, no. Let's just say, I don't know, 2000. Two? I don't know. Pretty good. Oh, okay. What is it? Pretty good. Is this, a, right. is this a gamay from... No, no, no. Is, <laughs> 1967, right. so lost all So I'm going to tell you what it is. Sure. And then we're going to taste it again and evaluate okay, it. Okay, okay, let's do it. All right. So what we're tasting is a 2002, kudos to you, Kistler Dutton Ranch Russian River Valley Chardonnay oh, interesting. from yeah. Sonoma. Mm. Um, this wine's a bit hard to find because it's an old vintage. You can get it in an auction or some uh, fine wine store, seventy to a hundred bucks. They're expensive Chardonnays anyway, and they kept going up. The reason I picked this one is I wanted to go the other way, which mm. is classic California. Yeah. But this is one of their Merzot, according to them, not their big buttery. But you know it's funny. I think I. It, I, I mean, this is what every this is what every wine taster does. Yeah, so it's evolving now on the nose, and I can. But I will say, I mean, there is definitely there's been there's that vanilla kind of butterscotch. Oh which yeah. Initially, I was like maybe a chardonnay, but yeah, it had that like lovely. It has like an apricot nose, which is maybe yeah. falling a bit for the color. Yeah, I get um, hazelnut roasted hazelnut. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so it is a little cloudy, right? Does that mean it's unfiltered, unfined, or not necessarily? That. Can, Maybe not. I don't think that they. I would. I think that they filter and find their wine. They may. Um, all right. So it's pretty dark, which you said indicated age. The nose. What we get on the nose? Oh, sorry. It's all right. Alcohol for sure, right? Yeah. I mean, I. I, one of the things that one learns in the course of blind tasting is, you know, how to take care of your palate and what destroys it and what helps it. And I will say, I'm not trying to be a cop out, but I, getting, I just flew back from San Francisco and my nose is sh- totally shot. But hold on, I still get the. There's a bit of an apricot, maybe an orange peel, yeah. hazelnutness to it. Some I mean, I, I initially got a little l- bit of the vanilla, little, but I'm not getting as much. A little now. citrus, a little nutty. I agree with that. All right, what would you put the mouthfeel at? Full, medium, plus. Mm. Full. Mm. 
Yeah. It is a mouth-coating yeah. Chardonnay. Um, let's talk about the palate. Mm-hmm. What do you pick up on the palate? Is it still fruity for a 15-year wine? I still get some of that citrus, lemon definitely. peel. Grapefruit. Grapefruit. Kind of like a... There's definitely an unctuous quality to the wine, which was yeah. making me think Viognier. It has like this thick, rich... Are Viognier's generally thick and rich like they this? They can be. Okay. Because yeah. um, I mean, he's famous for thick and rich. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He's become more restrained, Stephen Kistler. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say that it's... I don't know exactly what the alcohol percentage... I would think it's like on the higher end. Let me... I mean... It's definitely Let's see feel if it's it. on the bottle. Ba, 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 ba. I don't think it's on here. Does it have to be? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It has to be on? Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. Let me see. Hold on. I'm going to give it to a you little once. tiny. It has a good amount of acidity. I mean, it's, you know, that's yeah. fermenting it still. Um, this is, yeah. Oh, my God. 14.1%. That's high. That is that's serious. High. That's high. Oh, boy. Now, now you got to ask the really tough questions. All right, so now, now I have a question for you. Go ahead. Let's do the Paul Greco test. So, I mean, this is this is the Paul Greco slash Bianca Bosker test. If you were to describe this wine as a human, as a celebrity, as a song, as a poem, what does it evoke to you? So, I used to like this type of wine. Yeah. I grew away from it. I like a more. <laughs> you talk about the word mineral in the book. Oh. You know, is that even a term? Um, I think it's made well. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You know, it's definitely got its complexities and all that. Not my style. You know, I'd yeah. rather drink a Chablis or whatever. Um, it's like an old, but you know, a little over say, the hill Hollywood star. Yeah, I like that. You know? Yeah, it's somebody totally. get like Nick Nolte or you know somebody. Yeah, get, but I like. I will say that it's. I I love. I just have such a weak weakness for kind of whites with a little bit of age on them. So I will never turn up my nose at Now, did, this aged, I mean, the provenance, it's in my cellar, yeah. so it was good. But it aged well for a 15-year-old California Chard? It's holding up well? I haven't had a ton of 15-year-old California okay. Chardonnay, but I'm enjoying this. But it's okay. Yeah. All right. All right. What foods would you pair with this particular mm. wine? Hmm. Is it the obvious stuff or not necessarily? I don't know. I mean, I have to say, I, so part of me just thinks, like, thinking about, like, old Hollywood glamour, that, like, you just drink this wine at 2 p.m. Uh, by the pool and say fuck it to the rest of the day. There you go. <laughs> just drink it on an empty there stomach. There you go. But no, I On mean, an empty stomach. Yeah, right. Good recommendation. <laughs> yeah. Um, you hung out with enough scientists and you telling people to drink on an empty <laughs> stomach? That's all right. <laughs> no, no, no. But I think, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a decently versatile wine. I mean, you... I don't know. You could have like a, a delicious like rotisserie chicken with it. Yeah, you can make I a guess good pasta chicken. dish. Like it's. Yeah, it'll hold. I don't up think up. I would have steak with it or not, like not really, red meat. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. So let's wrap this segment up. Do we like this wine? We've got some. We've got some wine to get through here. Do um, we like this wine? Be honest. There's no. I'm interested in what it has to say. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know that I would. How much is it? I think on release it was probably fifty bucks. I think now it's another here's twenty-five. What, here's what I would say: I wouldn't buy another bottle of this. I wouldn't either. But I, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about uh, in what this glass of wine has to say. Okay, all right. That's we'll we'll end it on that. <laughs> all right, we're going to wrap the show up. 
Um, if you have a question, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Um, we'll post Bianca's wine list answers this week, and we'll also list the wine that we tasted. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at sbenruby and on Twitter at benruby without the S. And Bianca, where can we find you on social media? And then we'll get to the book. I'm at bbosker on Instagram and on Twitter, and I'm me, Bianca Bosker, on Facebook. And then just biancabosker.com has news about the book, upcoming events. And if you follow, if you follow Bianca on Instagram and Twitter, you'll see more than time to time her do her doing her pear devil and all kinds of things you know popcorn and stuff or whatever so that's pear devil and the book is called cork dork and it is available pretty much at all bookstores and on amazon right yeah. you can order it online you can walk in you can listen to me read the audiobook and you can go to your independent bianca bookstore. hit the new york times bestseller list right so yeah. we could say that it is a new york times bestseller and it just recently came out, so it's really great. It's new. It's fun. I read it. I recommend it. I enjoyed it. If you want a real interesting snapshot into the world of wine for somebody who really knows how to write, um, I think you would enjoy this book. I've had a bunch of people on the show, and I bump into people. I say, have you read Cork Dork yet? And they go, no. I say, you got to read it. Oh, thank you. you know, I, I really just, appreciate I just that. think people in the business and friends that I have that casually yeah. like wine, I, I think it'll, you know. I, I say the same thing. I, I, I believe in that. <laughs> but it means a little more coming and I, from you, It's I funny. You said earlier you bumped into somebody, and they said, are you still married? I mean, I made sure I read the whole book because I realized, you know, that it's important that you go through the whole thing. So that's Cork Dork. Look for it at your bookstore or go to Amazon. All right. So we want to thank our guest, Bianca, Bianca Bonk, Bosker. <laughs> Bonk, Bianca Bonkers. <laughs> Bianca Bosker. I've called that on occasion. Author of Cork Dork. <laughs> Um, like I said, available on Amazon and at most booksellers. Um, do you have any upcoming events or signings in the next? Let's yeah. talk about, you know, the foreseeable four or five, six days or whenever. Well, I will say, um, so I will be at a talk and signing at Word and Greenpoint with none other than Morgan Harris, who's Morgan in Harris the book. is Morgan in the book. Yeah, so you'll I think get Morgan may be a good guest for this show. Uh, he'd be an awesome guest. Yeah. You should do it. So that would be fun because if you read the well, if you're going to buy the book, you don't know who Morgan is, but he would be a cool guy to meet before and then afterwards. Yeah. So you're going to be in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. That's when. Uh, July 22nd, I believe. But you should go to BiancaBosker.com slash right. events because that knows better thing. than I do. Okay. Um, I'll be at the Harvard Bookstore. Um, you never know. Okay. Stay tuned. Just go to <laughs> Bianca's website. All right. Bianca, thank you for coming in and putting up with me and talking about your book. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Great um, questions. This was a really, really fun and afternoon. Good luck. Thanks for sharing the wine. Continued success with the book. You've been listening to The Grape Nation. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and I may get fired after this show because I ran too long. <laughs> and I'm taking Bianca with me. So we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.